Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, March 20th, and this is the weekly market update. So before we get started, just want to remind you that anything that you hear on this podcast or video is not investment advice. Please do your own due diligence. It is your money and therefore your responsibility. So this week's reality check, I came upon this chart and we've talked a lot about in the past about real yields, right? Real interest rate yields. And uh, just for those who maybe forgot, the real yield is the, at least the way I look at it, the 10-year treasury minus the inflation rate. So uh, if you have a three-year or 3% 3 yield on the 10-year on the and a 2% inflation rate, you have a 1% positive yield. Conversely, if you have a 2% yield on the 10-year treasury and a 4% inflation rate, you would have a negative 2%. And negative yields basically uh, means you are losing purchasing power. You, you have a positive nominal yield if you have 2 or 4% or whatever on your treasury, but the inflation rate is larger than that you will be losing wealth basically. And what we have seen in the past, this chart goes back to 1900. You know, one of my, one of my arguments is, is because of all of the debt that we have, we have unprecedented levels of debt, but we have been at these type of debt levels before in the United States. And when was that? Well, let's look back to after World War II. You know, World War II started approximately in 1939, ended in 1945. And you can see that during the war and then after the war, the US ran extremely negative interest rates. Why did they do that? Well, they, they basically ran negative rates to basically get the debt down, basically steal from savers and give to borrowers, which was their, who the biggest borrower was the government. And you can see how negative the yields got after World War II. I mean, they were like almost negative 20%. That's crazy. Same thing after World War I. If you go back and look at World War I, basically the same thing, right? Actually, it started before the war, but uh, you could see that there's been times in history where we've been extremely negative uh, interest rates. Now, do you go back to the late 70s inflation here, and the early 1980s, if you remember that, when gold made its last all-time high uh, during that time, and then Volcker came in and pushed rates positive, real rates, and crushed inflation. And this was the Reagan era then. And then the subsequent uh, neoliberalism we've enjoyed for the last uh, 40 years in this country. But um, that pales in comparison to what we've seen in the past. And so we're the trend seems to be down over time. And, and what's happened? Well, our debts have gotten larger and larger as we've, uh, over the last 40 years, right? Since the so-called Reagan revolution. And now we're in a situation now where we're running these extremely large deficits. We're just charging up the credit card, putting everything uh, on the national debt. And my argument has been why I'm positive on commodities and gold longer term, I define long term as five years, three to five years, is because they have no way out. They're not going to repay this debt. They're not going to stop spending. Um, 
just the way that the demographics and the political structure of the United States is now, it's not one where people want physical responsibility. People want to be responsible for their own lives. People want to be taken care of. They want something for nothing. And, you know, you've seen reports, just as an example, just this week, you know, with some of the benefits, somebody did a calculation that it's conceivable. Well, it's not even only conceivable. People are complaining already that are running businesses that the large yes from the government and the tax credits and the free handouts are so large now that people won't even go back to work. They're making more to sit on their butts at their house. So why would they go, go back to work and work at, you know, in a restaurant or in a retail establishment? So we're already starting to see, um, see those effects. And so this is what happens, right? When government, <laughs> government's going to fix everything, right? And it gets in there and it starts messing around and it creates a problem. Then it will come up with a solution to fix that problem, which exacerbates the problem, then creates another problem and you go down the line. So I'm not going to go off onto a political rant because I just don't have the time for it or inclination. It's not going to change. What I'm telling you is, is that we've seen extremely negative interest rates in the past. And they were really after times or times of war or times of distress in the country. And they are a method. They are, in fact, I have to find the paper. I know it's out there. So I have to do some more research. You know, the Federal Reserve is aware of this. They have written papers or economists have written papers or researchers of what the policies were after World War II to deal with the large debt to GDP problem we had then after the war. I mean, not only were we uh, the arsenal of democracy, if you will. We were putting out all these ships and planes and, you know, we had the Lend-Lease Act. So we were supplying all this material to our allies, the Soviet Union, France, England, plus our own war effort. We were basically, our industrial base was untouched by the war. So we had the ability, I mean, I just watched the documentary, documentary um, this week about the oil industry in South Texas and how it really blew up during World War II and was supplying all these oil and refined products for the war effort. So I'm not saying we're going to go back to 15% negative rates, but we do have negative rates in our future. And you have to look past the short-term trading volatility. I've talked about this before. People concentrate on the day-to-day -day motions, the week-to-week. -week. You know, oil was down 7% this week. I have no idea why oil was down 7% this week. I really don't. Who knows? It was probably overbought. It had a, it's had a pretty decent run lately. It's probably pulling back, right? And there's so much volatility in the market now that, and with these algos and everything, things just swing massively. Do I think oil will be higher a couple of years out? More than likely, just because of the lack of, you know, we've talked about before, lack of investment, lack of new reserves, new production. Do I think it's going away? No, I'll talk about more about that later in this video. But, you know, that, that, that applies to a, a lot of the metals and um, things that we have to bring from the earth. And then you put the tailwind of just this unrestrained spending and nonsense that's going on in the West. And, uh, you know, it's just, it just feeds on itself. So, yes, I think that uh, ignore the short-term volatility, ignore the short-term, trying to find an answer why something moved week, week on, week off. Who cares? Do you have the long-term trend in place? That's what you need to, uh, to understand. So you can say to yourself, okay, well, you know, inflation seems to be increasing. We've talked about that before. Is there any scenario that's current right now where you can see the Federal Reserve raising rates to choke off the inflation? They can't. The debt is so huge that you, you saw what happened when Powell tried to do that at the end of 2018. 
you know, the market dropped 30% like that. And he was forced to reverse course very quickly. I mean, it was almost comical. So uh, I thought this is very instructive and just wanted to bring this to your attention that when somebody says, well, if negative rates are like 3%, you know, 3% or that's really a lot, that it's been a lot worse. We've been, you know, more than, we've had negative rates all the way up like 15, 20% in our past. And I'm not suggesting we're going there again, but we are certainly not going to be in positive interest rate territory. And you just talk about the current deficits. We're not even talking about the unfunded liabilities out there. Now, I wrote an article that's on my website probably five years ago about the social security tsunami. You know, 10,000 people are going on social security and Medicare every single day. This baby boomer population retires and that's going to go on for years. We don't have the money for that. These promises have been made and, uh, you know, the only way it's going to be, you know, it's like, I've talked about this before in previous videos when Bernanke, not Bernanke, um, Alan Greenspan was sitting in front of Congress and the only person actually knew what they were talking about with asking questions would be Congressman Ron Paul. And he asked him about this exact issue. How, you get, how is the U.S. government going to pay all these liabilities? They don't have the money. It's mathematically impossible. And, and you know, well, you know, it's going to cause a problem. And he said, well, Congressman, the United States has a printing press. The obligations will be met, but I do not guarantee the value of the currency that they're paid in. So there's your answer. And that was 15, 20 years ago. So here we are. All right, moving on. So this is a chart uh, found on Twitter, and it basically shows it's a total money flow uh, with a 50-day 50 50-day rolling average of um, money coming into uranium mining stocks, which includes uh, the ETFs. So as you can see uh, this year, the things pre pretty much went parabolic. This is even with a 50-day rolling, you know, 50-day, you see the 50-day rolling average, right? The moving average here. It tries to um, you know, tamper down these big moves, but obviously the trend's been up since 2018. Money's been coming into the sector. It's funny you can see the previous uh, bull market here. We're already exceeding that, so it's interesting. You know, um, I've been getting a lot of emails. Uh, I got an interesting email, and I've got a lot of Twitter DMs about. Um, these uh, uranium companies, what's going on, the big move in uranium, is it over? And obviously, guys, I, I can't predict the future. Um, I'm very bullish on uranium and uranium stocks, as I have been for a while, and I've been clear about that. Now, I bought into, and my subscribers bought in, many of them at least, bought in at lower, very lower prices than where they are today. So we've had already big moves. Do I think the moves are over? No. But let's talk about this again. I've had to say this before and I'll say it again. These are not investments. Do you, you have to differentiate between investments and speculations. The uranium sector, all the mining sector for that, for that matter, uh, especially the junior mining sector, are cyclical, speculative, uh, undertakings. They are not investments. An investment is like the coffee can portfolio. 
You buy a share of Coke back in the 1960s and you put it in a safety deposit box or a coffee can, and then you come back in 10 years and it's worth, you know, 50 times more because it's compounding growth over time. It generates cash flow, profits. The profits are reinvested into the business at a high return on invested capital. That's not the case in the mining sector. The mining sector is one of the crappiest businesses out there. It's a net destroyer of capital over time. Let me say that again. This is a terrible business. They're horrible businesses that should not be owned 90% of the time. However, there are short periods of time when the cycle changes and the price of the underlying commodity goes up because of the previous year's underinvestment, which leads to shortfalls in supply as demand intersects with that supply, forcing the price up. Why is the price going up? Okay, because you have a lack of supply. The price goes up, that attracts capital to that business. More people come in to take advantage of that. They open up more mines, you get an oversupply, rinse and repeat the cycle. If you draw that out over a long period of time, that results in a net destruction of capital. Therefore, these are not investments. They are speculations. You're speculating that the price of uranium is going to be higher in the future and that you buy the stocks with the, with the view that the sediment, the money flows, the emotion, the media, everything will come in and you will get the effect of the greater fool. That, that's really what this is about, guys. Now, I talk a lot about investments and, and I have investments. Mining stocks are not investments, they're speculations. And the uranium, uranium sector can be an excellent, tremendous speculation, as it is currently. But do not fool yourself, these are not investments. Most of the companies, I would say this uh, without, if you wanted to be an investor in the uranium sector, the only company that you could probably make a case to invest in, it would be a weak case, would be Kaz Prom. Rest of the companies are uninvestable currently. They don't have any earnings. They don't have any sales. They're not having any activity. So when you write to me and say, well, what do you think about XYZ company? Well, I think that you should watch to see how much cash they have and make sure that they're not going to be diluting you to kingdom come. I've said that since for years. That goes for all mining companies. You know, these, these guys are promoters. They work on, it, it's, it's all speculation. What you think will happen in the future? It's not something you can map out. Because if you do that, if you put, apply fundamental analysis to 99% of these companies, you wouldn't buy them. You don't see Warren Buffett buying mining companies. These are speculations. And if you catch the wave, you can get a great ride. But the ride ends at some point, just like when you're surfing, the wave eventually ends when you get to the beach. You have to know when to get off. So, you know, that's why I've been telling people for the most part, if you think that these sectors are going to go higher, whether it be the oil sector, oil services, these things we talk about, the uranium sector, you're just, and you can make the case that you think uh, in your mind, you've, you've analyzed the information. So yes, I believe that the uh, price of uranium will be higher in three to five years then you should just buy the ETF. Then you don't have to wring your hands and worry about which company. Because if you think you're going to get the company that's going to go up 10,000%, you know, I don't know, you might, but more than likely you won't. And there's going to keep generating more uranium companies. At the peak of the last cycle, there were 500. 
two of them went into production. Okay. So there's a lot of, you know, excuse my language on this, I guess. There's a lot of mental masturbation and a lot of Twitter twittering back and forth about XYZ company better than this company. They're all crap companies. They don't have sales or earnings. There's nothing to analyze. The wave is coming in, start paddling, get up on your board and ride it. That's it. Then get off. Now the question should be is when do you get off before you hit the beach, before you hit the rocks near the beach? That's a conversation worth happening. But, you know, trying to apply fundamental analysis to what will happen at $70 uranium with this company, with its current projections, blah, blah, blah. That's not what's going to happen. What's going to happen is the price of uranium will start going up. What's already being anticipated. We haven't really seen a move. And these stocks will respond to that. And money will come in. And it's a small market cap sector. So it, it will respond to those money flows. And then the hype will build around it. You know, I'm, I'm fo- I thought fo- people say, well, what, what, you know, what do you analyze, John? Google trends. Uh, go to Reddit, the, the uranium investing speculation page. I, how many people are subscribing every week? That's the kind of stuff I track. It's not worth, you know, you want to pull out some random company. Uh, I don't know. Anfield resource. I have no idea if they'll, what their pro- who cares? It doesn't matter. Don't ask me about it you're wasting your time. These are not investments. Copper juniors are not investments. Junior oil and gas stocks are not, these are trading sardines. You have to catch the wave at the right time. I mean, it's that simple. I, it's that crass. These are not investments. So um, this is a major issue of what you need to be focused on. What's the money flow into the sector? You know, we talked about the Doug Casey quote about uh, you know, trying to put the contents of Hoover Dam through a drinking straw. That's what a uranium bull market looks like. And so as capital keeps coming into this market, which I suspect it will over time, then the prices of these companies will go up. You know, and at some point, it'll be, they'll become extremely overvalued, even, you know, just like every other speculation, just like all these other companies that are not investable, like Tesla, and some of these uh, stocks that have had tremendous runs during this lockdown that don't really make any money. So that's my view of how you should look at this. Now, if you have the time and inclination, you can go through and try to figure out which one, you know, has the best marketing and who has the best, you know, you got companies like, I don't even want to mention the companies. They're just lifestyle companies for the CEO, but they tell a good story. They can get on and rap to you about how nuclear is growing in China, the supply demand. What's that got to do with their actual business? They're not mining any uranium. So what are they doing? They're selling stock. That's what they do. So that's why I encourage people to go to these uranium, go to at least one of these conferences in Canada where they have all these junior miners, man, you go down table to table and every story is guaranteed success. So I'm not trying to burst people's bottle bubbles. There's tr- there's tremendous amount of opportunity here, but, but understand what we're dealing with. These are speculative entities. These are trading sardines. That's what they are. And this money flow is one of the major things, the sediment around it, the hype with the internet, we've already seen what can happen. Why, you know, a c- company like GameStop, the same thing is probably going to happen with these uranium stocks on steroids once it gets going. 
and it's starting to pick up an ESG vibe. I mean, it's, it's everything setting up the news flow, the money flow, the sediment, the emotion is building around it. That's what you have to focus on. Now, if you want to analyze Kaz Adam prom and Cameco, well, you know, I guess you could make that case. You probably won't put money in them though. They're not investable. So having said that, here's kind of the good news we were talking about. News flow is very important for these story stocks, for these speculations. And what are we seeing? We're seeing more and more spot purchases of uranium being announced. We talked about the yellow cake uh, purchase, right? Um, we had Denison come out and say they're going to issue stock. I'll put the press release in the show notes. They're going to issue stock and buy uranium in the spot market and hold it because they feel that as the price, they explain it in there basically as the price goes up for uranium, that will make them more investable. They'll be able to use as collateral for other things. You know, it makes sense. You know, uh, you can't really make money buying uranium or the market's hot right now. So why not issue equity and then buy your, I mean, I wish the other miners would do that. I wish gold miners would do that. Silver miners, it, you know, would do, would do the same thing. So, you know, the same thing with UEC, you know, I'm not going to, you know, I'm talking about XYZ companies. That's what I'm talking about right here. These guys, they tell a great story. So they came out and issued more stock. And actually, this is incorrect. This, uh, they had to upsize this. They, they went, they're going to go not 400,000, they're going 1.2 million pounds. And so, you know, then Toretta Ferg says here, you know, Uranium Participation Corp management to follow suit given DNN actions. Yeah, I think that's going to happen, especially if the stock of um, the net asset value continues to be. Uh, uh, or the stock price continues to be above the net asset value. There's no reason why UPC wouldn't um, come out and uh, upsize and start buying uh, spot also. So, you know, so what else is happening behind the scenes? You know, when these hedge funds come in, you know, my argument is that I've said that commodity markets overshoot. And I believe that the price of uranium in the end will overshoot the previous high. That's typically what happens. You usually see an overshoot of the previous cycle's highs. So if the previous cycle high was 138, can we go to 150, 175, $200 a pound? I don't know. Anything's possible. With the amount of development and new, new plants coming online to produce electricity from nuclear fuel, um, yeah, I think anything's possible. So I think this is the kind of stuff that really drives these stories and these narratives and that feeds into that speculative frenzy. And that's why you get the kind of money flows you're getting. Now, I would challenge people to say that you're probably going to see pullback. Nothing's a straight up line, right? We've seen a tremendous run in a lot of these commodity stocks, resource stocks that we're involved with. And um, you can expect a pullback at some point. So that's, I, I do expect that to happen. So, you know, that's why I nibble away. I just do it in tranches. I don't just take my whole wad and throw it in there. Position sizing is important. You don't want to be too overexposed to any one company or any one industry. Yes, there's going to be stories at the end of this where some guy went in with, you know, 10 grand, 25, 50 grand and put it on that one stock that ends up being the performer. That's probably not going to be you. It's very possible. I don't know. You could do it. But uh, I don't I don't do it like that. I've got burned in the, in the past doing things like that. So I have a set allotment. I'm very bullish on uranium. 
very bullish on most of the resource sector. And, uh, but you know, you gotta, you still gotta be rational actor here, but you have to understand what you're doing. So like I said, it's, it's, it's speculation par excellence. So this is a uh, Goring and Rosenzweig. Um, we've been on some power, some podcasts recently. This was the blog for this week. And in this one, Adam Rosenzweig was talking about in this blog about the energy intensity of the green revolution, which I thought was really great because I've been talking about this myself and for a while. And, you know, it's starting to get more traction in the press now. You'll notice that, you know, a lot of times we're well ahead of the mainstream on pointing these things out. We only have a small audience. Hopefully it will grow over time. But, you know, we're always thinking ahead and we're being poo-pooed for our ideas and they become more and more mainstream. And this is one of the things that I've been saying all along that, you know, this idea that you're just going to have this energy transition from dense sources of power to less dense, it doesn't make any sense from a, you know, second law of thermodynamics, physics, math, engineering, it doesn't make any sense. It's never been done. And this time is probably not different. So uh, a couple blurbs from the article, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. I suggest you read it. It's a five minute read, but it's very interesting. You know, some people though, here we go back to this. Some people are so invested emotionally in these things that they won't even listen to these type of arguments. And that's fine. I'm not here to convince you. What I'm telling you is this is, I work in the industry. What he's saying in here is absolutely true, especially about the life cycle of a lot of these machines. You know, the life cycle of a machine is being assumed on a wind turbine of being 25 years and they're already running on a 4% IRR. So if the machine only lasts 23 or 24 years, you've already wiped out that 4%. Okay. And you're in the negative. And I've not seen any machines last that long. I see many, many machines being repowered at 12 to 15 years. And that's where they take change out the nacelle, the blades, they'll leave the foundation, they'll put a collar on there and just, you know, reuse the foundation and the underground infrastructure of the collection system. If it's, if it's still sized properly, and they'll just put bigger nacelle with a bigger generator and gearbox in there because the other one's worn out already. I mean, the forces that are exerted on this equipment at height is it's tremendous. And uh, anyway, he, he says this, uh, this is Adam Rosenzweig, few people realize how energy intensive the green transition will be. As a result, much, if not all of the carbon savings will be undone by generating the power in the first place. So we've talked about this, right? The manufacture, first of all, the raw materials that you have to get, the manufacture of those materials into these machines. They're made out of steel, they're made out of fiberglass, they're made out of other types of metals. The base is made out of concrete, which has to be, you know, made in a kiln, has to be heated at 3000 degrees. The iron uh, ore that has to be transformed with met coal and, and into iron so you can make the rebar, okay? And the steel sections of the tower components, okay? All of this stuff has an energy component, intensive energy component. And if the machine doesn't last more than, you know, I mean, these things are being propped up there as being 25 years, but it's just, it's just not being seen out in the field. So he says, uh, we estimate the move toward renewables and EVs would generate nearly 45 billion tons of incremental CO2. Therefore, nearly 10 years of carbon savings would be spent on the energy transition itself. 
Given the huge upfront energy needs of wind, solar, and batteries, any performance disappointment could mean the difference between moderate carbon savings and net increases in carbon. So the argument he makes in the article, which I find interesting, is not only will you get possibly barely any incremental savings on CO2, you may end up creating more CO2. And I don't think the data is sufficient yet to determine that, but we're going full bore into this regardless. So we have to fall back on our heads I win, tails I win more, because in the West, the governments are hell bent on doing this. Now, I don't even think anymore it's about CO2. Um, it's just a way to control things. You know, there was a wrestling in the 80s and 90s between, you know, or even before that, after World War II, between uh, socialism slash communism and capitalism. Capitalism, one, uh, is without a doubt lifted more people out of poverty than any other economic system around the world. That's just a fact. It's not in dispute. And so they lost, especially in the United States. There just was no appetite for a, you know, socialist or communist revolution. I mean, it's ridiculous. It just didn't, didn't catch. I mean, I used to be in a bargaining unit when I worked in the refinery. We actually had in our bylaws statements against communism. So if you came and proclaimed communism at the union hall, you'd be kicked out of the union. So where was it going to get its foothold? So it morphed into the, the you know, the communists, socialists, these utopians, statists, basically the little bed bugs that are psychologically defective that want to control other people that which is really what it let's distill it down. You know, it's not pick on an ideology. You're dealing with psychologically damaged people that don't want to try to control the environment by building things or making, creating something from nothing or something like that. They want to control other people because they're psychologically defective people. They're sociopathic, they're pathological people. That's what politicians and these people that want to be in charge, what kind of a person would even want to be in, be in government or be a politician? You're chronically lying all the time. I, I don't even want to get into it. So what is the real agenda? The agenda is to control, control money, get wealthier, uh, tell other people what to do, control things. Uh, you give politicians money, you know, all the money that's given. I mean, we're, this is not going to get reversed, right? It's three or four hundred billion dollars a year is being spent on this right now. It's going to increase on this stuff. It's not going away. There's all kinds of people in at the trough feeding NGOs. Uh, business people, organizations, lawyers, politicians, and all kinds of people. Okay. So that's why you got to adopt it. It doesn't really matter what the facts are. You can put the facts out all day. The only thing that's going to change it is higher prices and just hitting people upside the head where it's so obvious that this doesn't work and it causes them pain. Then they'll say, they'll jettison it. But we're a long way off from that. So. I think it's good to at least read these things and be abreast of it because you should be a thoughtful person and you should understand what's going on. And so if the real goal is to increase or decrease CO2, because that's the pro people propose, some people propose that that's the primary driver of climate change, then, uh, you know, that's really not what's going to happen more than likely. People are going to be disappointed. So, you know, a lot of these things assume that we're going to have less energy usage over time. And you have a lot of these billionaires 
I don't know. I think they're, most of these people are sociopaths too. I mean, to get to the level and you read some of the stories about how some of these people act, act in their companies or treated people, you know, and so they get, they become a billionaire. So they've done their little thing at their company. So they have this godlike complex. They're going to save the world now. And they're just busybodies. They're going to tell everybody else how to live. You know, why is Bill, why is anybody listening to Bill Gates on this vaccine thing? Just because he's a billionaire at Microsoft? Okay, what, 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 you know, what, what qualifies him? Why is he being such a busybody? Is he that bored in life? And they're all the same, pretty much. So anyways, I wanted to point this out. This is a tremendous article, but it fits right into our narrative that doesn't really matter because we're not going to control that. People listening to this video or podcast, you don't have the power to change any of this. So we have to understand that they're going to push hundreds of billions and probably trillions of dollars into this exercise over the next couple of decades. Or I don't even think it goes that long just because the economy in the West is, are just going to collapse under the debt. It's just not going to be possible. People are going to be worried about a lot of other things besides the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere over the next decade. That's my prediction. But regardless, in the interim, so we have to play it from the heads I win, tails I win more. Okay? And that's what we're doing. But uh, it's an excellent article, and I'll put a link to it. So I wanted to talk about this. I think this is the last slide this week. Um, it's the ECB crypto warnings from a tweet from the European Centra Central Bank. Crypto assets are volatile. They lack any intrinsic value and there is no reliable institution backing them. In contrast, get ready for it because I've, I've talked about this, not only with the ECB, but the US, China's already moving this direction. In contrast, a digital euro would offer Europeans the same level of confidence as with cash, since it would be backed by the ECB. This idea that these governments that are, that are staffed with sociopaths and control freaks are just going to let all these cryptocurrencies run wild indefinitely, I believe is a mistaken um, view. Uh, they're slow off the starting blocks, but I think they figured it out, you know. And you have the same thing from Janet Yellen, the current Treasury Secretary of the United States. She's basically said the same thing, except more forceful. She actually added an ESG comment to it, too, that the mining of the cryptocurrencies are extremely uh, negative to the, um, to the environment. You know, the mining of Bitcoin alone consumes the equivalent electricity of the entire country of Greece. So... You can see where this is moving to. Um, they're, gonna, they're going to set up their little digital currencies. And then people say, well, John, they can't stop people. You don't understand. Yes, they can. They'll just outlaw it. And if you, you, they'll make some examples of some people. Now, you, you know, messing around with your little $1,500 on Coinbase, they don't care about you. But there's some big players. They'll pull them in, and they'll put them in prison for 40 or 50 years. And they'll put them in, they'll put them in the uh, Supermax on 24 hour day lockdown by themselves. They'll make examples. That's what, the, that's what they do. And that will dissuade other people from doing it because who wants to go to prison for the rest of their life? They just won't do it. It's the same thing with these vaccines. Mandatory vaccines are coming or you won't be able to participate in society. That's, that's how it works. And the average person is a dope and, and doesn't do any critical thinking and, and just goes along with this stuff. So... Um, well, until, until the whole, you know, thing goes off the rails, which is what I'm thinking is probably going to happen over the next, within the decade. So anyways, that's another 
thing, but to focus back on this, do I own cryptocurrencies? Yes. Another speculation, another trading sardine. Can you get off the dance floor or can you find a chair when the music stops? Can you get out? Don't be the last one out the door. Stand by the exit so you know you can get out the door before everybody else or just don't participate because they're going to, um, this is where it's heading. Once they get their systems and their digital currencies, these uh, blocks like the ECB or the US, then they're just going to slowly outlaw it. It won't be as bad as during the French Revolution, where they said that you couldn't, if you got caught using a foreign currency besides the uh, inflated French currency, that you'd be put to death. I don't think that will happen, but I think they'll make some examples of some people. That's what they do. They will exert whatever level of violence they need on each person to get them to comply. That's what, that's, that's government. It's force. As Mao said, power comes out of the barrel of a gun. So I'm not opposed to it. I hope it doesn't happen. I hope all these people that are advocates, you know, they're all, they seem to be very freedom and libertarian minded, but I think they're living in la-la land if they don't think that uh, these governments are not going to get, you know, the ability to dictate what money is and create it and control it uh, is one of the main factors of control for these governments. If they didn't have that, if you didn't have a dollar, a fiat dollar, you wouldn't be able to have the warfare welfare state that they have here in the U.S. because they couldn't afford it. If we had a, you know, a gold-backed system like we used to have, you'd actually have to tax the populace and people wouldn't put up with it. People wouldn't have their taxes doubled, tripled, and quadrupled to pay for welfare bombs and foreign wars in Iraq. They just wouldn't do it. And, but when you get rid of that, people don't see it, right? They don't see because nobody's taxes get raised or they do it, they just grumble a little bit and you know, they just print the money and, 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 and throw it on the ledger. That's where we're up to $30 trillion in debt on the books. So I think this is where we're going. This is what they've been saying. Just telling you, Yellen said the same thing. She even used harsher language than this and said that, you know, basically the same thing. If you can't pick up on that vibe, I don't know what to tell you. And if you think they're just going to stand around, I'm shocked it's taken this long, actually, that they haven't stopped it already. But that's probably because they don't have an alternative uh, ready to go yet. So maybe they'll be able to, maybe they'll allow them to exist, coexist. I don't know. But uh, I'm just saying it seems to be the handwriting's on the wall and uh, the lights are starting to dim at the party. So anyway, something to think about. Uh, be interested what people think in the comments on this one. I get a lot of feedback on this type of uh, discussion. Oh, one more. Oh, a couple more slides. For, sorry. So got to um, talk about copper supply. This is another article. I'll put a link to it. Um, Within a decade, the world may face a, I wouldn't say may, it's going to face a massive shortfall of what's arguably the most critical metal for global economies, copper. The copper industry needs to spend upwards of $100 billion to close what could be an annual supply deficit of 4.7 million metric tons by 2030 as the clean power and transport sectors take off, according to estimates from CRU Group. Closing such a gap would require building the equivalent of eight projects the size of the BHP Group's giant Escondida mine in Chile, the world's largest copper mine. So dig that. To close the gap that is being forecasted would require building the equivalent of eight of the current largest mine in the world, eight of those in the next nine years. I don't see that happening. I don't see anybody announcing that. I don't see anybody talking about that. And to 
and to put an exclamation point on it, why I'm so bullish on copper, look at the last blurb. This is from the CEO of Free, Freeport, one of the largest copper miners. Uh, they have a big mine in Indonesia. What did he say? He told an industry gathering last week that even if copper soared to $10, pounds, $10 a pound tomorrow, it would take his company seven or eight years to get new production to the market. Seven or eight years. So it, I guess the message here is these things are going higher. Um, there's been chronic underinvestment. The price of these things are going to go higher. And I think the, the um, it's tremendous opportunity. And ignore the day-to-day, week-to-week machinations. Get the long-term trend and just buy your position early and sit there on it. And don't fret about it when it moves up and down 20%. In a, in, a, in a couple of weeks. Just don't worry about it. If it goes down and the thesis is still in place, buy more. Wanted to point this out, gold stock sediment, the second worst in 10 years. You can see right here where we're at. I mean, we are, nobody wants to own gold. Gold's horrible. I would point this out that this uh, whole turnaround in the gold market, this peak in the gold market uh, from the um, $2,000 when we cracked $2,000 back in the summer has coincided with the rise in the 10-year interest, uh, 10-year bond rates, which continue to move higher and uh, have probably moved way higher to, uh, too quickly. So I, I'd suggest that things are lining up maybe for a gold rally here uh, pretty soon. Uh, I don't think that rates are just going to keep marching up constantly straight ahead. Nothing, no market goes one way constantly. So uh, if we see turnaround or a pullback in rates, which I think is possible, um, we could see uh, we could see sediment, and sediment is so low in gold stocks right now. We could get a move, and I did have noticed that a lot of my gold stocks have been moving higher in the last couple of weeks. So I'm not ready to call an end and say we're in a new you know the bull market's resumed. I think we're in a long-term bull market for gold. That's obvious, just because of what we talked about earlier in this uh, video about negative interest rates, but. Um, you know, if you don't have a position, this might, this is a good time to buy, right? Uh, when you, when sediment is extremely negative and no one wants something uh, and you, you know, in the short term, you have negative sediment and volatility have pushed these down, but you have a long-term view that things are going to be higher. These, these would be times when you would want to buy. So uh, when you have these low sediment readings, that's usually worked out fairly well. Okay, guys, uh, that's it for this week. Um, appreciate the, uh, subscribers getting a lot of like i said newsletter continues to grow remember if you're going to subscribe volatility nothing goes straight up buy in tranche tranches okay we're, we're we're in a bull market a lot of these things but if you came to the, watching these videos or if you're just a recent subscriber to the channel and you've got fomo because everybody's talking about it on twitter wade into this slowly. Don't just, you know, shoot your wad on Monday morning uh, and then the thing pulls back on you 20 or 30%. This is what happened to a lot of people in gold. Gold hit a uh, all-time high back in the summer and now nobody even talks about gold anymore. And a lot of the stocks are down 30 or 40%. So, but we're still, in my view, in a long-term secular bull market. That's, that's what can happen. So you have to, you have to wade into this over time, okay? very volatile trading sardines. All right, that's it for this week, guys. Thanks a lot, and we'll talk to you next week.